Thank you for tuning in to our Roots Running Podcast. I'm Richie Hansen, coach of Roots Running Project, and I'm really excited to sit down with American running legend Benji Durden in this episode as we prepare to head into the Olympic Marathon Trials two days from now. Benji ran 209 for the marathon in 1983 while finishing third at the Boston Marathon and made the Olympic team in 1980 by finishing second at the Olympic Marathon Trials in Buffalo. He's been called one of the original gangsters of American distance running and had an incredible development in the sport, DNFing in his first marathon, running 236 in his second marathon before breaking through with that 209 in 1983. So I hope you enjoy hearing a little bit about his story and his progression of how he got to where he did. As always, thank you for your support, and please consider picking up one of the remaining items on our website from our recent gear sale. Enjoy the show. The nerves before a race are usually the fear of failure. Yeah. Um, Or the fear of success, there's that too. But essentially, you just have to get out of your way and let your body do what it's prepared to do. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Roots Running Sessions. I'm really excited about today's podcast. We're the week of the Olympic trials down in Atlanta on Saturday. We're recording this on Monday before the trials. But I'm sitting here with, I think you were termed OG of distance running. <laughs> somebody somebody posted that back in December. Uh, Benji Durden, 209 marathoner, former Atlanta native, well, native of California, but Went to school at actually native of all over. Native of all over, State. yeah. But a marathon running legend, and we're going to talk a lot about running Atlanta trials coming up. Your experience running the 1980 trials, marathon progression, fueling all of the above. So I appreciate you joining me today. I think it's going to be fun. And I know you're heading down to Atlanta on Wednesday. Yep, yep. going to run the marathon the next day. Yeah, the. Have, Running in Atlanta, I'm sure you're familiar with all of the roads that the course are going to be on. Have you? Has there been a race along that same route that you've done in the past? Well, Peachtree uses part of it. Right, on Peachtree Street. On Peachtree. And the, the Atlanta Marathon, before the current Atlanta Marathon, uh, came up parts of Peachtree and finished near where we're finishing uh, this weekend. And you've raced that one in the past. And I've raced that one in the past, yes. Any advice for people running on Saturday? Everyone's talking about the hills. Well, the, it, it starts downhill. So the first problem is to make sure you don't get crazy and get in a pace that you can't maintain. Yep. Um, it's very easy in a race like this because of the uh, adrenaline and excitement to get out too fast. So the first, you relax. Don't try to get out too fast. And then try not to overcompensate uh, for the uphill. You want to run up the hill strongly, but you don't want to overdo it until you get towards the last hill. I ha- I've been looking at the profile, trying to study it for our own athletes. We haven't yet seen the course. We didn't go down for the preview race that they had this past year. Um, the steepness of some of those grades, like to me on the map over the course of distance that they are, some of them are a half mile, mile long. Obviously you're going to notice it while you're running it, but how steep would you classify those? It it depends on how you're feeling. I mean, I, I um, run Peachtree many times, and <clears throat> the only things I really notice is when I'm really pressing, I feel it. But if I'm running aerobically, which you should be, 
the marathon, uh, it shouldn't seem that bad. You're going to slow down, but you got to be careful that you don't freak out because you're slowing down. You just got to accept, okay, I'm running uphill. I'm going to lose 10 seconds a mile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of the best advices you gave to Aaliyah, Aaliyah, my wife, um, when she was getting ready for a marathon was if you do it right, your first 10K feels almost conversational. Actually, 10 miles. 10 miles feels conversational. And then through the next 10K, you start finding a good rhythm. When you get to that last 10K, it's a matter of will, and you feel like you're racing. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as a 10-mile race, a 10-mile transition. I mean, a 10-mile social run, a 10-mile transition to the 10K race. And if you do it right? If you do it right, the, the pace same. is the same pretty much the whole way. <laughs> yeah, which is... One of the best ways that, like, you put it perfectly into words when you were sending her that that word of encouragement. And I, I look back at that a lot when we look at a lot of our marathon workouts because you're you're gradually ramping up the effort even though the pace might not fluctuate. Yeah, you, you, as your fatigue increases, you're going to feel like you're slowing down. Yeah. Um, and, but, but if you maintain a little bit better effort each time your fatigue increases, you can keep the same pace. Now, when you look at the profile of the course, like you said, you've run a lot of those those roads before. Noah made the comment this last week when he heard an interview with Ben Rosario, the coach at NAZ Elite, that Noah, Noah first made the comment that he saw a lot of people saying they weren't really going to change much with their marathon training and their approach to this race. Whereas Ben Rosario put it, really what you have to be doing for this race is training as if you're running a 30-mile race since it is such a strength course. How would you assess that? I mean, it, it may be that I think it'd be more like a 27 to 28. I don't think it's quite a 50K. Um, but it's, it's going to be more of a listen to your body race than mm-hmm. what. You can't, listening to your Garmin or whatever is going to be a mistake. You've yeah. got to pay attention to how you feel. Yeah, so in that instance, someone would almost be better off not even having the Garmin with them. They're of course, just, then it won't show up on Strava. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, everything has uh, If it doesn't it's not on show Strava, up, it, it didn't happen. happen. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so going back to before, and we'll get to 1980s marathon trials because um, that's something that I, I feel like it's applicable to this race, but also just your experience in that type of event. But one of the quotes I saw was that you wanted to be a professional athlete, you got, and I'm sure you were joking, but like the idea of the ball whizzing by your head as a baseball player terrified you. Running was something that kind of drew you in. What was it initially that brought you into running? Well, I I was a a very good student, so I was an academic. And one of the problems growing up as an academic is you're not respected by your peers. You have to be an athlete too. And so I tried out for a lot of different endeavors. I tried baseball and hard balls by my head didn't make me feel all that comfortable. I I, uh, tried football and I was okay until they hit me (laughs) because I had decent speed. Um, I tried pole vaulting, but that seemed to be pretty dangerous when I watched a pole vault shatter in front of me. Yeah, because I think it, it was that was just the early advent of the fiberglass. Yeah, fiberglass too. had been around for just a little while, and it was it was very fragile. Yeah. Um, and then I decided, okay, I'll try running. And about the same time, uh, President Kennedy's um, physical fitness program came along. We had a 600-meter or 660 uh, shuttle run. Uh-huh. And for some reason, I hooked on to that, and I started winning the shuttle run every PE class. This was high school or middle school? This was uh, junior high. Okay. And um, so I, I became the shuttle run king. I was running you know, really good shuttle runs, and 
And I went out. I'd already been out for track as a pole vaulter, and I'd been running the 600 there, but not all that well. But the next year is when the PE thing started. Okay. And I, as a no, as a ninth grader, ran five flat for the mile. And then I was going to be a miler for a while. Yeah. And I was okay there, but I wasn't great. Um, until around 74, I began to figure out, okay, I want to run the Olympic trials. But I didn't feel like I could quite get the standards for the 5,000 and the 10,000. And this was this was after college? This yeah. was after college. Yeah. I'd started running again. I, I kind of crapped out in college. I wasn't that good. I was okay, but I wasn't great. I was a 415 miler. Okay. Never broke 13. I mean, uh, 15 for the three mile. I mean, I, you know, I just... Yeah. It's okay, but not good. And so, I, you know, I kind of could look at the future. I could see, well, the 5,000 standards... More than I can reach right now. I can do that someday, maybe, but not right now. The 10,000, the same way. I said, well, I could run a marathon. That standard, I think, was 223. I thought, I probably could do that. Uh, but I couldn't, not until after the trials in 76. I ran on first one I dropped out of, then I ran a 236, then a 237. And then they had the trials, and then around 22023. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, I was, I was looking at your progression. Like, you have that first one that you DNF. Did you try, that first one, if you, if I you, tried to run the standard. That's, but, that was my question. Yeah. yeah I, I tried to go out. I had, I didn't have the prep. I, yeah. I had, you know, I didn't have enough behind me to do it. And, I got to halfway and I said, this is really stupid and quit. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the quote I saw that you had turned to some friends and were like, whoever becomes a marathoner is, is crazy. Yeah. But then in, what, six months later you were doing Well, no, it was another year. I, okay. I, December that that was, uh, uh, Thanksgiving of 74. Okay. And I went back to the same course. Thank these Atlanta marathon. Went yeah. Back to 75. Started off the same way. Uh, trying to get under 223 and, that one, I there's another sad story there. Nike had to come out with the Oregon Waffle, and I'd wanted the Oregon Waffle to pray to, to race, pray, race in rather cross country season. It was a cross country shoot, yeah. And they showed up towards the first part of November, and I thought, Oh, where are these in there? Which yeah. was a totally stupid thing, <laughs> just completely stupid, yeah. And I, I buy the marathon course is really brutal. I mean, this the course they're running Saturdays. Black compared to that course. Yeah. Uh, Neil Cusack, who won Boston the same year, ran a 216 on it. And it, it was course record forever. Nobody oh, ever ran wow. faster than that. But anyway, I, so I get to about 18 miles. My feet are so beat up from those shoes, I took them off and started running barefooted. <laughs> and I ran about two miles barefooted. And a friend of mine who had dropped out of the race came by in a car to see, he wanted to see what, what I was doing. He forced me to put on his shoes, which were half size too big, which at that point, running barefooted for two miles, it worked. Yeah. It was also 30 degrees. I'm running in barefooted. <laughs> barefooted. <laughs> so I was glad just to finish in a 236. Yeah. And, but I'm sure what you learned from those first two, what, what was your training like going into those that you said, like you weren't, you weren't trained properly. Well, I didn't have enough mileage for the first one. Okay. I had better mileage for the second one, but I was doing the more get as many miles as you can get in every day approach. Yeah. Um, and even the third one was partially that way. Well, actually, the third one definitely was that way. That one was the Florida Relays. And that, that one, I wasn't really prepared for the heat. The heat just... I gotcha. It was way too hot that day. I went out of... So, 
223 pace again and look at like 237. And then uh, in 77, an uh, accident that forced me to reevaluate how I trained, a hiking accident. Yeah, was this, I, I saw this story where you were on a trail, was it in Italy? No, this was in uh, Switzerland. So but, but a rock came down. A rock came off the trail, smashed into my knee, um, missed my head by inches. I felt it go by. That's how close it was. I could just feel it here. And the doctors told me I'd never run again, and I'd walk with a limp the rest of my life. Huh. And they were wrong. Yeah. But it did force me for a while to, to train differently because it hurt. And so I'd run up to the point of pain, and then I'd take the next day off. But what, do you know what the actual injury was? Or um, it, it, it damaged the ligaments in the knee. Because I know you you were braced for a little bit. No, right? no. Or like I, I had to wear. A, they wanted to. I wore it. a full cast That's for right. about yeah. about ten days. Okay. To get home until I could get a doctor to cut the cast off. Yeah. And then I started running. I even started a marathon. I ran the <laughs> Nike OTC marathon that August or September. And dropped out about thirteen miles. Wow. Um, but you know it was I was foolish. I ran for about a month. And the pain just stayed. It was just you know, consistent pain. So the, the plan was I took about a month off. This didn't run at all. And I ran until I began to hurt, and I walked back. And I kept doing that every other day. And by January, I was running two hours every other day. Hmm. In February, I started racing. And it was a line of track club races, and I started running PRs for the courses. And then I started adding in a little bit of running in between every other day. In uh, April, I ran Boston and had a four-minute PR. Wow. And that was 78? It was uh, 78. So how much time did you miss running in total? Uh, I, w- I had about a month off in, like, uh, 77. Uh, most of October was off, and a little bit of November. And then I started the Every Other Day program, building back up. And when I started back building back up and ran well up, at uh, Boston, I said, you know, this hard, easy approach. And I didn't at the time know about Bowerman's approach to running, but it turns yeah. out I was doing kind of what Bowerman believed. And it sounds like a little bit of Lydiard, too. Yeah, but again, I didn't know these things. I was just, yeah. I was, I had one guy who was a Lydiard fan work with me, and we got up to a lot of mileage early in my running in 76 before the, the 220 that I ran at the trials for second, or not the trials, the nationals for second. Um, but that, the, the literary approach was more, get as much volume in the period as you can. And I went from that approach, the Bowerman approach was get in volume, get in speed, but get in rest. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a mixed training program. And because of the nature of what I was doing, I was a road racer, not a track runner. Mm-hmm. I raced year round. Yeah, I think I, I have, was it the 1979 to 1980 racing schedule that you had posted? And it's fascinating to me because 1980 was the year of the Olympic trials. And even like, I mean, five weeks before you finished sixth at Boston Marathon, mm-hmm. you end up finishing second at the Olympic trials. I think even the week after the Olympic trials, you you ran like a 25K road race. And a couple of weeks later, you PR'd in a 15K road race. That's something you and I have talked about where back in that time, people weren't afraid to race. You raced a lot. Even I think I did the math like from 1970, 
1994 when you attempted your first marathon to 1991. Over the course of that 17 years, you averaged like 3.2 marathons a year that you actually raced. It wasn't just running them. And most of those times tend to fluctuate like 211 to 215 in most of them, but you ran 210, 209. Like what was it then that made people race a lot more outside of just like fear of people seeing results? Well, part of the way we made our living was appearance space. Mm -hmm. And we did a lot of races where that's all we got. There was no prize for for placement. And so you went, you did a clinic, um, then you ran as hard as you could. You got your 500 bucks or whatever, and you went home. Mm-hmm. And they paid for all the expenses, so that was kind of neat. And you, there were social aspects to it. But it was a, it was a training run. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, yeah, so I ran 30-something races in a given year. Maybe, maybe six to eight of them were not training runs. Yeah. The rest of them, yeah, I was running 30, 30 for 10K, but that was training because I didn't rest that week. I ran 95 miles that week. Yeah, and I'm sure, like, it... it... I mean, obviously, like, racing tactics, mentality, approaching racing. Like, when you're getting to some of those bigger races, you had already been there so many times. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're tired when you go into these little races, but you learn things. You learn, okay, if somebody's responding this way, and the next time you see them, you'll know if that response is there, what to expect from them. So you learn about your adversaries. You also learn of what you can handle. Um, you know what kind of fatigue you can tolerate. Um you know, because there are all these warning signs you get when you're running, but some of them don't mean you need to slow down. Yeah. Sometimes they mean speed up. Yeah. And if you don't practice that in a, a true racing environment, you don't really learn what you need to know when it is an important race. Yeah, I think it, I saw, I think in those bigger races and bigger, meaning a lot of the majors and like higher profile marathons at the time, I think the lowest finish you actually had was like 12th. And I think that was Fukuoka. Yeah. And that was a mistake. Yeah. And that was, that wasn't that like, they, they called it like almost like your reward for the 1980 Olympics. That's, that was our alternative race. Yeah. And I, I overtrained and I went out too hard. Yeah. But so, most of them, you're top 10 in all of these. Pretty and, much. Yeah. yeah. Top five in most. And, but it was that that was that was how I made the money by you know I made my fame and then I went to these other races to make my money. There wasn't I didn't get anything for Boston. Yeah, never got a cent for running Boston. Um, I got a, a bonus from Nike when I ran two hundred nine. Yeah, but never made a cent running Boston. I uh, made some money at New York, um, but most of the time when we ran the big marathons, that wasn't our payday. That was our, our notoriety, notoriety, yeah. our, abil- our celebrity our ability then to cash in at the uh, Peachtree Corners 10K. Yeah. So when you did Boston, then five weeks before 1980 trials, you obviously, you know, trials is still coming. Was that still like the intent, like you're treating it as that's your prime race and then trials is kind of a bonus or was it vice versa? Uh I can't remember exactly what I was thinking at the time. Yeah. But I suspect I, I felt like, well, do them both. And if one of them is great, great. Um, I'd already, we already knew February 21st, apparently, is when we found out we weren't going to Afghanistan, or because of uh, Afghanistan, we weren't going. Yeah. There was, Carter had done a, a deadline February 20th. If you're not af- out of Afghanistan, we're not coming to the Olympics. And so I found that out this week. I, I, somebody posted that, and I hadn't really. 
I knew in April, but but I guess I knew in February too. But I knew for sure in April that we weren't going. Um, but I, Boston was a notoriety thing. If you went and ran well at Boston, you could use that to run well, money wise, somewhere else. You know, you know, I could get invited to a lower key marathon as a figurehead, and they could give me a couple thousand dollars, and I could run you know, two fifteen to two eighteen, and you know, you know, be a decent payday. And the the trial standard that year was the two twenty three. Uh, no, the two twenty three was seventy six. The standard, I think, for um, it might have been two twenty three again in eighty. And then we had that was one of the bigger uh, fields. It was two hundred and something. Which is comparable to what they're seeing now. Yeah, People are yeah. talking about the big fields, but I was looking back, and the numbers almost are pretty similar they're year very to year. Similar. The difference. Then, though, as it was a, a point-to-point race, you didn't have the, the loop issue. Okay. Of course, we did not get... Um, I'm trying to remember if I had a fluids table or not. We Nobody really took anything special. Yeah, it was mostly water. It was mostly water. water. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. said I, I know you said Frank Shorter. He was, like, one of the first ones you knew of that did, like, coke during... Yeah, he, he and Kenny Moore, um, you'd see them sitting... Shaking Coke bottles back and forth to get the fizz out of them. Yeah. Yeah, not not the defizz like we, we're doing now ahead of time. No, they, they just do it the morning of. Because, you know, we did not have we did not have the issues where you had to turn it in the day before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, that didn't show up. I, tr- I think I might have had to turn something in for 80, but I don't really remember it being very important. Because I, all I did was water. And it was humid. Correct. It was supposed it, it, to be hotter, but it was. The it got into there. the seventies, and it was kind of humid. And that was Buffalo. It was Buffalo. We ran from the Buffalo side on U.S. or the Canada side to Niagara Falls. Oh wow! And did train in Atlanta? The humidity, I'm assuming, like that gave you some assistance. Well, and also the sweats. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's that's actually one of the. So for those listening that aren't familiar with Benji at home, Benji was notorious for training in sweats in Atlanta year round, regardless of the conditions. And that was something you, you said helped you adapt, not only temperature wise, but it also made you a little bit tougher as an athlete as well. Well, it started off 77. I ran Boston and had a so-so run. It was like 225 or something. I don't remember exactly, but it was so-so. It wasn't a run I was that proud of. And it was a hot day. And I got invited then to run um, in Puerto Rico. We have a race down there they called the 450 Marathon. Um, it was the 450th anniversary of founding of Puerto Rico. And I thought, well, I don't want to get in a hot situation and not be able to function. So I started wearing long sleeve shirts. And the reason I started wearing long sleeve shirts is because I'd read a Playboy magazine article about Ron Dawes, called this man inside that sweatsuit. Ron Dawes, for those that don't know it, he was a 68 Olympian. Uh, and he, called, he wrote a book called Self-Made Olympian. And he, he was a contrary. On the winter, he'd wear as little as possible. In the summer, as much as possible. Huh. But he got as much as possible from Buddy Edelin, who was the first American to hold the world record in the marathon. Mm-hmm. And he'd gotten that from training in, in Europe, and Europeans were doing it. So anyway, I started this. And all through you know, the six weeks before this Puerto Rican race, I kept adding clothes. I started long sleeve shirts, and then I put on some 
we didn't have tights back then. We had Russell cotton sweats. Yeah, that's heavy. Heavy stuff. And so I, I started wearing a layer of both. So I went down, won the race in Puerto Rico. And in the leading up to the Puerto Rico race, I got faster and faster in my non you know, prep races, my non-important prep races. Come back, say, okay, I've done that. I don't need to do the sweats anymore. And I started getting slower. I said, hmm. So it occurred to me that even for not hot races, that this stuff was helping. Uh, Dr. Dave Martin, um, renowned physiologist, uh-huh. also a training partner, he'd come out and run Sunday runs with me. And I talked about it. And he said, yeah, well, it's, it's you know, your capillary bed's improving. It's kind of like being at altitude because of Boyle's Law, the temperature of the liquid, how much of, you know, air oxygen could you get in the, the liquid is based on the temperature of the liquid and the pressure. So it's kind of like training at altitude. So I started doing it more. And I got to the point where I was kind of crazy with it. I, I was running three sets of Russell sweats and three rain suits yeah, sandwiched between them. So I had on six layers of stuff. And, you know, there's also strength training in that I was carrying all that crap. Yeah, and, and you were saying, too, even on, like, some of your longer, slower days, it, it forced you to keep the speed slower. Yeah. I mean, but your I, heart rate was still up. My long days, I'd do two hours and 45 minutes wearing all this stuff, and I'd get maybe 640 paces about as fast as I could go. But the heart rate was good the entire time. The pounding yeah. wasn't there, but I had a very good cardio. Yeah, so you could recover from it yep. pretty quickly. Yep. I, you know, I'd have to drink a lot when I got done. But. Yeah, and you still, even now, you're st- you still run in sweats, long sleeves. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, part of it is I'm cold intolerant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like that, that that was one question somebody had asked me was if they were forced to wear all sweats, who would be your favorite in this year's marathon, based on what you experienced at that time. Hmm. If they all, if everybody in the if race, if everyone in the race was required to wear Desi? sweats, Des, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, she's also just tough in any condition. Yeah. Um, I think Jared Ward might be. I mean, I think he's pretty, pretty solid. I don't, I don't think Rupp would be happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> what about training in the humidity of Atlanta versus altitude here? Was there one that you found particularly difficult compared to the other? Well, I, I moved here when my career was. Pretty, pretty much, much over. over, yeah. And so, I'd, and I actually trained occasionally at altitude, just coming up here for a few races. I never found altitude to be that difficult. Yeah. Uh, I think training in Atlanta, the way I was training, you know, altitude wasn't any big challenge because I was already working pretty hard. Uh-huh. Um, and so, I, I think either way, I mean, problem is if you train at altitude pretty exclusively, going to humidity is hard. For sure, yeah. But if you train in the heat and humidity, you're already you know, tolerant of a lot of adversity. Yeah. And that uh, going back to the 1980 trials with Buffalo being humidity, that was something, obviously, the way that your training methodology it transferred over to that type of race pretty pretty well. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't uncomfortable from that point. And, well, because it was point. May, wasn't it? May it was May Buffalo. 23rd, I think. Yeah, so it's already pretty humid that yeah. time of year. Yeah, I mean, I, but I, from that standpoint, the only time I felt discomfort is when the pace was high. Yeah. I never felt like the, the conditions were tough. Now, when I was reading a recap of that, there was, uh, was Finelli took it out really hard. Yeah, but none of us paid much attention. Yeah, and then <laughs> he started blistering somewhere around 13. But the, the, the recap article said, 
you kind of looked up with a scowl when you saw the helicopter overhead and put in a big surge and and took the lead. Yeah, was the, it the, the helicopter? The, the helicopter had nothing to do with it. Okay. I don't remember the helicopter. Yeah, we we had um, I'd started off cautiously because the previous two marathons I I tried to run two ten and blown up to two thirteen, and so I decided okay I'm not ready for that yet. I won't I won't really go for it. And I went out cautiously and. It, the mile, I was five flat. I'd wanted to run like 5.15. Mm-hmm. And because of the excitement, five flat. But I was last mm. at the mile. Mm. And as we crossed into Canada, I had finally moved up. That was about six miles. I'd finally moved up into the lead pack over the space of six miles or five miles. And then, you know, there, you, know you have moments of difficulty throughout. I had a like at 15K, I'd had a cramp in my hamstring and talked myself through that and relaxed, and that went away. But then around 30K, I noticed there's still a pretty good pack, eight to ten guys. I can't remember exactly how many, but there's a fair number of guys. Mm-hmm. And I knew everybody in the pack, and I knew they all had faster 10Ks than me as a PR. And it occurred to me that I didn't want to kick with these guys, that that was not going to be a good plan. I had no race plan going into it. I just going to run it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty much always my plan. I didn't I didn't go into a race saying, okay, this is how I'm going to run the race. I'm going to run the race according to how I feel and how the race develops. So I surged. And the helicopter probably saw me look up at it as I surged, but I don't remember the helicopter. But I surged. And I got away for about, about two miles, maybe three miles. And Sandoval bridged back up to me. Mm-hmm. And then I hung on to him for about a half mile. He was gone. Yeah, I think the top three, you, Sandoval, and I can't remember. Kyle Hefner. Yeah, so you three were separated by about 45 seconds, first to third. Uh, it was actually less than that, 19, uh, 41, 55. Wow. Yeah. But that, I mean, that that's kind of incredible to find yourself in last place at mile one, not panicking, obviously, even though like the pace is faster than you anticipate, but still, there's 220 guys there. And then taking it, it, still not panicking over the course of five miles to work your way up to the lead pack. Not saying that like it's so early on in the race, but still, there's 220 guys that are in front of you. But only ten or so really capable of beating me. Yeah. And also, I knew that I needed to be more cautious than I've been at New York or the Nike OTC marathons, the ones I'd run 213. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt that I, my pace was, you know, it was always exuberance and excitement at the marathon. The trials this coming weekend, there's going to be a lot of guys in that first mile. Mm-hmm. And some of, all of them practically, almost 100% of them are going to be too fast, even mm-hmm. the guys that are going to do well. It's hard not to be too excited. And I, I before the race, I sat over and uh, we started near a museum, I sat on the steps of the museum and was reading a paperback, <laughs> science fiction short stories. Everybody's out jogging back and forth, and, and I'm trying to be calm, trying to be cool, trying not mm-hmm. to think about it. Gun goes off, and be calm. I'm not going to think about it. And you don't win marathons the first 10 miles. You just don't. <laughs> Unless you're so good that you can just go off and run by yourself. And trials is not one of those places you can do that. Well, and that's that goes back to when you find yourself in that position a lot, like racing a lot, it's easier to, to know what to what place to put yourself in mentally. Yeah, I mean, I 
all that racing I did, I learned, okay, this is, this is, I'm confident in what I can do. I'm confident in what, what my body can handle. And I don't need to pay attention to these other guys early on because what they're doing is either going to beat me or not, but there's nothing I can do to change it because I'm confident in what I'm doing. Yeah. And then, I mean, fast forward a couple of years later to 1983, like that Boston Marathon race where you ran 209, like that looked like, I mean, just on paper, I think after that, when you ran 209, you were third on the day, but fifth all time in the U.S. at that point. And the two guys that beat you, on that day that put them in that top five all time at that point. Do you remember much of how that race unfolded? Was it? Well, I, we, we started off pretty quick. We had a tailwind in that race. So part of the performance is a little bit by that. Uh-huh. And I, I think I was, I was about four eighteen a mile. That wow. first, at first Boston yeah, where downhill is just ridiculous, but I wasn't anywhere near the lead. I was, I was, Close to the front, I was in the pack. But then somewhere around five miles or so, I found myself just pulling away from the field. I wasn't trying to pull away. I just was drifting away from them. And I stayed away until just beginning up heartbreak. Greg Meyer came up on me. And that's about 21? We weren't quite. We were just about to 20. Okay. And I hadn't realized it, but I had made a, a tactical error in what shoes I wore. I had a wrinkle in the sock liner. And going uphill, going downhill through the, the first 13 or so, I had blistered. And I didn't realize I had a really bad blister. I knew I had a blister, but I didn't realize how bad it was. And going up the hill, the blister wasn't bothering me. Get over the hill, Meyer surges, and I try to go after him, and the blister pops. And now I'm running in a hamburger. <laughs> so the last 10K was a limp. Yeah. And so I would have run faster had I not had that blister. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, I mean, we've talked about, like, you and I personally about marathon training then versus now. And you've said before you don't feel like philosophy. There's much difference other than, like, in the 90s we kind of deviated maybe too much into speed and interval-based type of training. Well, yeah, in the, in the late 80s into the even late 90s, uh, speed was a lot more important than volume. Um, it was, I don't know why, but that's... But you also, I think, began to lose a lot of the depth. Uh, people, you know, were finding it difficult to beat the sudden infusion of Africans, and they were giving up. But that's something you said you made a commitment to pretty early on was, like, not focusing on the shorter stuff, the five. Yeah, I, I, I found once I became, <laughs> I became a marathoner and I got second in the U.S. Nationals in, in 76. That was, oh, Nike wants me to wear their shoes. Yeah. And they're going to give me free shoes. Right? Yeah. And it's because I'm a road racer. Okay, I'm a road racer. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it, and I, I had success running the roads, and I didn't have that much success running the tracks, so I focused on the roads. And it was actually fun for me on the roads. The other thing is living where I lived in Atlanta, track wasn't a big deal. There were opportunities, but you had to travel to get to them. And I, you know, Atlanta and Eugene were far apart. Right. And that's where the track mecca was. Um and so I didn't, I did speed work, but I never did high speed work. Although in the early days of 80, uh, Dick Berkeley and I, who, he was indoor record holder of the mile at that time, we did speed sessions together. So I did some pretty serious speed sessions. As part of your marathon block. As part of my marathon buildup for 80, running with him because he was fast. 
yeah. Well, and that's something that you correct me if I'm wrong. You 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 would advise with people, but you're pretty much self coach, correct? Pretty much. I mean, I had I had periods when I first started off. A guy named Billy Elwine. You know, this is post college. My right. college coach had no idea about this. this one. Yeah. Um, but Bill Elwine, who was a teammate in college, he he'd done a lot of reading, reading and running, and he was convinced Lydiard was the way to go. And he he helped me become a pretty good runner using Lydiard approach. But he drifted off to do his life, and I drifted off to do mine. And I you know had various you know the, the accident, hiking accident, and the uh, heat training stuff. These things I added on on my own. And I found they worked. And I paid attention. When something worked, I continued to do it. And when, some, when I found myself getting stale, I tried to examine, well, what was I doing? You know, and sometimes it's, okay, you just raced too many days. Yeah. Or you're, you're trying too hard, you're, over, you're overtraining. And I would adjust. And then before 83, Mike Caldwell and I worked together for, oh, I guess about three or four months. And that probably helped me some, you know, for the the uh, 1983 Mar- Boston Marathon. There was a period in there where I worked with uh, Joe Cannon, uh-huh. who was had a Catalano, uh, Joe Catalano, rather not That's a, that was a, a reporter. Joe Catalano, who was Patty Catalano's coach and husband. And I ran pretty well under him. I did, worked with him about two months. I ran pretty well for short races. My 15K improved a lot. I ran 43.28. Huh. But it was high mileage. And the, the funny thing because I'm a marathoner, you think high mileage, a marathoner would be better. I actually slowed down and became 212, 213 again. Yeah, because I saw the most that you, you you would run in periods of 140 miles a week, but historically you were 85 to 95. Yeah, I never right? ran 140 much more than that one two-month period okay. with, with Joe. I had a few 110s. <clears throat> that was in late 80. I did that for a while, and that's part of why Fukuoka was flat. Yeah. Um, I, I wasn't to get that kind of mileage. I had to run too much um, on my hard days, and I couldn't recover well enough on the easy days. <clears throat> and your your schedule would you keep it pretty consistent week pretty to much, week? Yeah, pretty much. I um, it, it was it was pretty pretty basic. It was speed on Tuesdays, and the speed would be somewhere between four hundred and thousands um, with. Probably no more than 5K of total fast stuff in a two to two and a half hour workout and sweats the whole time. Um, you know, I'd be doing two fourteen eight hundreds and three sets of sweats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Thursday would be my long run day, and I would do two and a half to two forty five and three sets of sweats. And the weekend would be when I take off the sweats and I'd run a local or easy somewhere road days. And then everything else is 45 minute runs. And on the uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and race day, I would do a second run from anywhere from 10 to 15 miles. Well, and it was that when I was talking with you after Noah's Rotterdam Marathon this last year, we were we were kind of talking through some of the philosophy that you had when you were training back in the 80s. It made me realize we were overemphasizing like fueling, glycogen storage more so than just training the body how to run in a depleted state. And like you said, in most of those marathons that you did, you were only taking in water. In most of my training. In fact, all of my training, all I took was water. Yeah, and you, like you said, in most marathons, like, I, I think, I don't think 
I never took you, any sugar drinks. But you never bonked either. Like you no. never had that. Well, I, I I did. I bonked once. Yeah. Um, truly bonked, and yet I didn't slow down when I bonked. Oh, I think this is the one of the it's quotes. It's marathon. Yeah, and the quote that I saw you say was, "You got um, it made you trust your body to run on autopilot." Yeah, I I'd been in France um, touring my ex-wife. And I were over there in 77 touring, just see Europe. And I wanted to run some races while I was there. And I made arrangements to run this marathon south of France, Arbert, France, which is down near the the, uh, coast. And seafood is their main production item. And so I had eaten a lot of French bread and mussels that week. Uh Mussels being the, you know, little chill, chill fish. Yeah. So I wasn't really loading at all. I had no carbs, hardly. I mean, French breads, it looks like it's carbohydrate. <laughs> yeah. There's not that but much But it's simple starch, too. And it's, yeah. So anyway, I led from the gun about 18 miles. I ran out of gas, and I wasn't sure I could finish, and I never slowed down. I got to the track with a two-minute lead, and we had to do two laps in the track for some reason, and I was convinced I wasn't going to win the race with a two-minute lead, and I won it by 2.20. Yeah, someone, I think you said somebody had yelled out what your lead was at one point, but you just like nodded, had no idea what they yeah, said. Yeah, I had no clue. They came up to me in a, with a press truck, a press car. It was a little Citroen, which is a French vehicle. It was smaller than the VW Bug. It was this tiny little thing. They had a radio telephone. Yeah. Because it's back before we had cell phones, obviously. And, and I don't know this. I was just told about this because I, I was too tired to remember it. But supposedly, I, they said, how are you doing? I said, I'm very. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, I think you said you were like that sleepy hungry. Yeah, I, I was past the sleepy hungry. So I was, yeah. I was zombie state. <laughs> yeah. and yet I never slowed down. Yeah. So you know, this is it's, my mind got out of the way. The body just kept doing what it just took to over. Yeah. yeah, and that's I mean that goes back to what we were saying about even controlling nerves and anxiety for some of these bigger races. Lexi last week was running a five k indoors, and she was really nervous for it, and the thing that I told her before is like, don't make it bigger than it needs to be. Just put your body on autopilot. And I think that's the thing that the training is done. The yeah. racing is just an example of the training that you put in. The nerves before a race are usually the fear of failure. Yeah. Um, or the fear of success. There's that too. But essentially you just have to get out of your way and let your body do what it's prepared to do. One of, one of the cool quotes that I, I, I love that I saw when I was kind of researching, like you and I were friends, but like I wanted to make sure I was prepared for this. But one of the quotes that I, that I saw was, uh, that you were really good at having boredom tolerance. And that was something you said you learned through some of those long, slow, easy after that accident. And I got that from Kenny Moore. Um, early in my running life, Kenny Moore was a hero. He had fourth in the Olympics and he was a tremendous athlete. And he said that I needed to have two things to be a decent marathoner. Tolerance for dehydration and tolerance for boredom. Mm-hmm. And I didn't seek tolerance for boredom. I just developed it. And one of the ways I developed it is I ran a lot of circuits in the woods. I had a, a three-minute loop. And I, could, I did up to three hours on that three-minute loop. Mm-hmm. The nice thing about it, it was in the woods. Nobody bothered me. There was no traffic to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And... 
you know, the scenery in front of me was changing all the time. Mm-hmm. I'd see the same scenery every three or four minutes, but it was, but it, it was did, different. It was different, but at the same time, it was, you know, I just didn't get bored. I I'd done uh, over the years many lap runs. Right? I did uh, one day we were in the University of Georgia area. I that's where I went to school, but I was back over there uh, to do a workout, and weather came up. And we had tornado warnings. So I went inside the, the Coliseum, which was a 400-yard horseshoe loop. So you go on the inside one direction, then the outside the other direction. It was like a horseshoe. And I did 20 miles on that, 400 yards at a time. But, and I've done 22-mile, I think that's the longest I did, 22-mile. While you were training? On a treadmill. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's, you get into your head. And you think about racing, and you think about this, and think about that, but you don't think about, okay, I gotta do this lap, I gotta do this lap, I gotta do this lap. That part is on autopilot. The body will do what it needs to do. Just think about everything. Yeah, and that's, I mean, like you said, that's a skill. That's that takes practice. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not something you're you're gonna just say, I can do this. You, you but you do it enough, and it becomes all of it. When it comes. You talked about like carb loading before that race that kind of put you in depletion. How much did you factor in nutrition at that time? I know you, I, I saw some. Not nearly as much as I should have. When you said you just, you just knew you needed a lot of calories. So you just ate a lot. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Bill Rogers put it one time that the engine's hot enough, it can burn anything. Yeah. Um, we all just ate a lot. I, I, I'd eat five, 6,000 calories a day at times. It's, you know, I, was all I could do not to lose weight. Yeah. Um, but we, looking back and knowing what I know today, nutrition probably should have been more important. Not so much to maintain specific amounts of calories, but to to have a little bit higher quality. You're 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 kind of fascinating to me as a, as a runner because on one hand you're very analytical when you're checking a lot of your stuff like assessing trial and error. How does the heat training protocol working? How does um, certain types of stimulus working, but then on the other side, you're pretty cerebral when it comes to running by feel and not having a race plan, just letting your body kind of doing what it needs to do. Did you keep very methodical records of your training? Unfortunately, no. Yeah, <laughs> I've got a couple of books of uh, for a year that uh, when I was running for Athletics West, I had to keep them pretty well informed what I was doing. They didn't tell me what to do; they wanted to know what I did. Um, so I've got those and I've got every now and then I would do a little bit of a long, but I wasn't really good at keeping records. What I typically would do is I would write down a program. This is my next three months. I'd write it down and I'd put it in a drawer. Once every two or three weeks, I'd open it up and see what I did. Uh-huh. And I'd make adjustments. But I listened to my body. It, it was not important to me what I did last month. It was important to me how I felt today. And that, and also back then, the other thing we need to point out is time was not critical. It didn't matter if it ran two thirteen or two ten; it mattered if we won. Uh-huh. Um, and so we we didn't think as much about time standards. Yeah, we thought, and we ran a lot of courses that were too hard to get time standards, but we didn't care because time standards wasn't how we were measured. We were measured by scalps. Yeah. How do you feel like you would have done in today's era where it is a lot about time? I don't know. I, I, it might be difficult. Um, I, 
I would have had to have had a training group so I could have training efforts like I had for those races. Because part of the problem that I think today is there's so much emphasis on how you did in your last race. Yeah. The, but the problem with that is, so you have a training group. You guys race each other in training. That's how you get your, your, your race efforts and do it in training in groups. It's the same guys all the time. For sure, yeah. And they're not your adversary. They're your teammates. It's better to go and do this with your adversaries. Where it doesn't matter if you crush them or they crush you, it matters. Where you're a teammate, you know kind of what the pecking order is, and it changes occasionally, but it's not something that you try to change. Right. You go to race. I wanted to, I initially I couldn't beat some of these guys when I went to low-key races. I learned what their weaknesses were. I learned what my strengths were. And then when it was important, I could use that information. Yeah. Well, and I, I saw a quote, like, Bill Rogers was a really good friend of yours, yeah. but you took enjoyment out of also beating Bill Rogers. Yeah, I mean, Billy was a great guy before the race started. He was a monster during the race. And he was a great guy until when the race was over. And we both wanted very badly to be ahead of the other. At the yeah, but it was a mutual respect. It was a mutual point. respect. We both knew that neither one of us was going to give an inch. And initially, there was nothing I could do to beat him. And then eventually, it was hard for him to beat me. His, his career was beginning to come down and I was coming up. But we made each other better. Yeah. That that head-to-head competition with people you respected made us better. So would that have been difficult you for you to train with somebody like that? Where... No, I, I would have trained with them fine. What the problem would have been is we would have crushed each other. Yeah, in, in training. In training. Yeah. And we wouldn't have been as one of us would have come out higher than the other. Yeah. And it would have discouraged the other. So it wouldn't have been good to have... I mean, you look at who Billy trained with. There were some really good athletes, but yeah. Billy was the star. Um, and I beat most of his training partners because Billy left them in training. Yeah. Well, and I remember you telling me, you made the comment one time that, like, you had guys to train with. It was great for you, but maybe it wasn't as great for them because yeah. they were always trying to stay with you. Yeah, I mean... It, it, there were a few times when I felt like it was a mutually advantageous yep, situation. Sure. But I, I got to where I didn't want to train with people that were near my ability level because it pushed too hard. Yeah. And I didn't want to train as hard in, ra- in training as I raced. Um, but every now and then, like Lee Fiddler was a training partner. He was a 215 marathoner. And, but we, we accepted that he was going to be a little slower than me in some of the speed stuff. But he could do the long stuff. Equally, and and we could you know we, we, we his motivation to get out, and get our workouts in, and like I said about Berkeley earlier, he was much faster than me, but I pulled him to the long runs. Yeah, and we made the Olympic team in nineteen eighty together. He made it for the five thousand. I made it for the marathon. Uh-huh. And so we had these situations where we respected each other enough not to kill each other in training, but we were actually looking at different endpoints. And that's where it comes, obviously, it's like communication relationship with that athlete to be able to put your ego aside, too. Because yeah. there's obviously, there's going to be competitors that maybe it's a little bit harder to do that with. Yeah, well, well, Galloway and I trained together for a while. Yeah. And we raced too often in mm-hmm. training. And it, finally, I decided I can't do this anymore. It's not beneficial to me. It may have been beneficial to Jeff, but it wasn't to me, and I had to quit doing it. Yeah. 
when you look back at the guys that you raced, was there one person that stuck out as he was the toughest guy you you had to race? Billy probably was the toughest. I mean, he when he was on, he was almost impossible to beat. Um, you know, he he would find something inside himself to to bring himself on up to another level if he had to. I mean, he was, everyone else. I mean, Meyer beat me in the marathon that one day, and I think I could have run in with him about this. I don't know if I beat him, but I. But we didn't race each other that often. We, um, he didn't race near, nearly as much as I did, and he was more on the track. Lindsay was impossible to beat when he was on the track. He was not a marathon. I mean, I, you know, Lindsay was just an animal when he was road racing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he was not really in my world. I run races against him, but I didn't expect to beat him because he was in you know, short road racing with his kids. Yeah, and along those same lines, too, would with Billy being the toughest that you, you raced, would he have also been the most enjoyable because then you knew that you had to get the most out of yourself to beat him? Probably. I I, I felt the best about racing him well. Um, you know, there was other people that, that I raced, but I didn't race them with the same knowledge that if I... I mean, like Sandoval. I, I, Sandoval might have been the most talented American marathoner ever. He just went on and became well-renowned cardiologist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but if he'd gone on, I mean, he, he had, he had the wheels. He was sub two or sub one fifty half miler. Yeah. Cause he, when you were kind of in the middle part of your career, he was coming up. Right? He was coming up. He had the American record for a circuit marathon, you know, uh, point, not point to point, but loop marathon. He and, um, uh, Wells tied, uh, it was two ten twenty something. And so, he, you know, he he was who I expected to win the trials in eighty. And running as close as I did to him was exhilarating because I didn't expect to be able to do that. Yeah. But I didn't race him that often. It, it was a fairly rare experience to race him. Little Bill, you could find a marathon any year to race against him. When when you like you, you mentioned earlier, when you were part of Athletics West, did you move up to no? UGA, I, I stayed UCLA, in Atlanta. Atlanta. Um, there were three of us that did not live in Eugene. I think Joni ended up moving back east, but she, she lived in Eugene for part of her time. But the Flora brothers and I, Flora brothers were up in the Boston area, and I was down in Atlanta. We were the remote. Yeah. AW. Was there ever pressure by Nike for you to move up to that area? Um, they asked me if I wanted to, but they really didn't pressure me. The, the crazy thing is they wanted me to be focus more on the track. Oh, interesting. Because they, they were an Olympic development team. When did you get signed by them, though? What, say that again? When, when did you get signed by them? Oh, signed. Okay. Um, it, in the 80 Olympic track trials. Huh. So this is even after making the team in the Yeah, I'd, I'd made the team. I'd already been getting um, financial support from Nike. Yeah. Um, you know, by, by improving them as much as I did over the years. But... Then at the track trials in the Animal House. If you watch the movie Animal House, yeah. the, the house that all the animals lived in, they had rented it for that weekend huh. for the trials. And they brought me in there and signed me to AW. Huh. And I lasted for a year. And then we started the pro circuit, the Association of Racing Athlete Circuit. And I won the Nike OTC Marathon the next year and they dropped me. Huh. I was no longer eligible for the Olympics. Oh, wow. And I got a better contract. Yeah. <laughs> who who is that through? 
was Nike. It was still Nike. But just AW not part of the AW. But yeah. not part of the yeah. AW. Um, if you look back at one of the most enjoyable races that you've had or most enjoyable race experiences? There, there are probably two. Um, I probably got as close to the edge as the ability in the trials. I mean, in the trials, I actually had tunnel vision over the last couple of miles. Or, and I, I began to hear heavy breathing with about, I guess... Two can you go? And we had a turn in the last, I guess, kilometer, where you turn and then you, it's a straight shot down to the finish. And as I was making that turn, I was hearing this heavy breathing. I was worried, okay, there's somebody right behind me. And I, I kind of just glanced over my shoulder. I didn't want to make it look like I was really looking to see who was there. And way off in the distance, I could see somebody. It was Hefner, but I had no clue who it was. And I realized... It's me. That heavy breathing is me. That's how close to the edge I was. And then the race that probably everything went as well as it could. And conditions had been a little different for the last eight miles. I'd run a lot faster. It was Houston in 82. Um, I had been dominant the entire race. Uh, Bill Rogers had started trying to surge at eight miles. Dick Beardsley and I were running right behind him. I said to Dick, we can't let him get away with this. Because... When Billy surged and nobody responded, he fed off of that, and he got better and better. And so we we had a press truck that had a clock on the back, and we started a two-minute drill. Every two minutes, either Dick or I would lead. We'd alternate. And we did that through um, halfway. And it was a two-loop course back then, the Houston course was. We, through halfway, we came back around. Gail, Bill's girlfriend at the time, yelled, Billy, come on, because he was beginning to fall off. You can take him. And I yelled back, you want to bet? <laughs> that was the end of Billy. And then at 18 miles, Beersley didn't come up for his turn, and the race was over. And I ended up running to 11-11, talking to the press truck for the last eight miles. Yeah, I think that's one of the pictures I posted yeah. in previous And, you know, if, if, if Beersley had been able to continue pressing, we'd done it on all the way to 22, 24 miles. We were both probably done with two times. So when you, when you started out, like you said, the first couple of marathons, it was trying to qualify for the Olympic trials. But then after that, it, it sounds like it's mostly about racing at that point. It's not. It's yeah. After I, after the uh, 76 uh, Crowley, Louisiana Rice Festival Marathon, which was the AAU Championships, I discovered that I had some talent with this. Uh, Jeff Hollister, who was working for Nike as an athlete coordinator or recruiter or whatever, had driven down and... I was wearing a pair of Galloway's shoes that were the wrong size for me. It was a pair of Nike Elites. It was a racing prototype. Uh, you couldn't buy them yet, but there was a few out there. And he'd given them to me, and I'd worn them in the race. And so Hollister comes up after the race because he didn't know what it was. You know, I, was a, I went from 236 to 220. So, of course, he didn't know what it was. Yeah. And he said, where'd you get the shoes? And I told him about Galloway because I was working for Galloway at the time. I was working at the and he said, well, I can get you those and more. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a picture of me and, and Hollister, um, one of the pancake houses, signing me on to Nike. And that's when I started thinking of myself as a marathoner. And I, I always thought of myself as a racer. I just wasn't that good at it. Yeah. I just got better and better. So when you approach that in each race, would you just 
go out with the lead group, assess how you're feeling with that lead group, and if it felt a little too hot, back off? Or It depended on the race. I mean, I remember some five-mile cross-country races where I would go out with the lead group, be way over my head, and have to stop and walk somewhere around two and a half, three miles, and recover, and then take off again. Mm-hmm. But what I found is I was getting closer to the front. And when I did those, the two times I had to do that walk, period, I still beat the guys that I normally would beat. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd take risks. I'd do stupid stuff. But that's how you learn. Yeah. Taking risks. The two marathons I mentioned earlier, the Nike OTC yeah. and the New York Marathon, where I ran 213. Well, the 213.47 is what I ran at Nike OTC. And that's where Sandoval and Wells tied in 210. Well, I was ahead of them at one point. And so I, you know, I was I was going for it. Yeah. And then at the New York Marathon, we didn't get a split till five miles. We coming across the bridge it's the first time we got a split, and Kirk Pfeffer and I were chasing a handful of Tanzanians, and we were twenty three three, oh, wow. which was way too fast. Yeah. And but I survived to be fifth. Yeah. So it's interesting because then that's that's more like calculated risks. You're still you're still racing. Well, I wasn't calculating. I was just racing. I right, was, but like so. But then when you look at 1980 trials and you're starting out in last place, it's like you're you're recognizing in that moment, but like the effort feels way too hard. These guys are going out too hard. But in other instances like that, where it's like you know you should be with those guys, but then the pace overall is just a little bit faster. Yeah, I mean, I I had not yet learned the lesson of pay attention to what you feel like. Yeah. When I started paying attention to what I felt like. I started having more success. Um, I, I mean, I you know, I felt at the end I paid attention to what I felt like. I, you know, at the night at the New York Marathon, Billy asked us asked me about twenty two miles, and we didn't lead. You know, assumed we are because he'd come up on me at like twenty miles, uh-huh. or actually about eighteen miles. We ran together for a couple of miles. He said, "We're leading, aren't we?" And I said, "No, Pfeffer's up there." And he took off and left me. And I didn't try to go with him because I knew I was already running as fast as I could. Yeah. But somewhere between the New York and and Boston the next year and then the trials, it occurred to me I have to do something different. I'm, I'm dying at the end of these. So I started trying to go out 15 seconds a mile slower than it felt like I should. Yeah. And it turned out that was the right pace. Hmm. Even though in my mind I knew I could run five-minute pace. If I tried to run five-minute pace, it'd be 4.50. So if I tried to run 5.15, it would be 5.05 to 5 flat, which was appropriate. Right. And at this time, too, there's obviously no Garmin. No, no. Garmin's. We are, we got splits, if we were lucky, at 5K. And then in training, same thing. Uh, yeah, like, I never... I knew sections of road where I would run frequently, that I would run that section and get a... You know, I'd, I'd have a, of time on that section that kind of gave me a feel for what the distance overall was. But when I first started running, all the watches were wind up. There were no battery powered digital watches. Yeah. And a wind up watch worn frequently enough, it'll kill the gearing. Yeah. And so I'd stop, get a stopwatch, I'd start the stopwatch, I'd go out and do a run, come back and stop the stopwatch. And that was how long I ran. Huh. Sometimes when I was running in Athens, Georgia, I had a calculus professor who was the first person I, actually the second person I knew who had done marathons. And he had gone carefully measuring all the roads in the county, Clark County, 
And so every half mile there was a mark and all the roads in Clark County. So I knew how far I was running by running those roads. But it was also bad that I could, when I finally got a watch that I could go run with, I would time myself. I was trying to do six-minute pace on all these runs, and it was too fast. Too yeah. Hard. Well, maybe that's where you, like, as a timer, became, a, a, like, the obsession of, like, making sure courses are properly marked comes out of, too. Well, the part of that, and also I, I knew about course certification. I, I learned that, actually, before I started doing timing. We had a, a, a marathon in the Atlanta area that, uh, we had an age group runner do some really fast performances on, and they wanted to know if it was certified. It wasn't, so we went out and certified it. That's why I learned about that. Huh. Did you have a, a science background from college? Or? Yeah, I, I, um, I was going to be a professor. That was my original goal in life, to be a professor. I, was, yeah. I studied biopsychology. I was going to be a, you know, a teacher. Um, I got disillusioned from that, and I'd been running all along just because I enjoyed it um, and said, okay, I'm going to focus on my running for a while. Worked as a shoe sales guy at Philippides and then warehouse manager for Philippides. And then as I got better, I went back to being a shoe sales guy for Philippides until I made enough money I didn't have to. And then you just focused on running. Just focused, well, I was focused on running the whole time. Yeah. But, but I got support. to I didn't have to go to some other place. I could just run and take a nap. Well, and this is something that maybe we do another podcast on in the future to talk about what the sponsorship model at the time. Obviously, there's there's so many different tangents we can go on when it comes to running, but just like you were saying at the at if you ran, it was simpler then. If you ran X time, you knew you at least got free shoes, and if you ran faster, you knew that okay, now I might get travel stipend, and it was an escalated approach. Yeah, and it, it was essentially the doing of. Nike. Nike came into the world as a running shoe company, and they wanted to get on as many running feet as possible, and so they wanted to have hometown heroes. And to get hometown heroes, they had to have standards. And it started off, 10K was essentially the standard. And if you could break 31 minutes, you got free shoes. Mm-hmm. You could break 30-30, you got maybe a trip or two. Uh, 30 flat, you got a bunch of trips. And all the shoes you could throw away. And, you know, it kept getting, and at some point, like 29, 30, you began to get maybe a little bit of a stipend every now and then. And, you know, and, and, but you also had obligations. I mean, you, you had like four trips, but two of those trips, you had to do something for Nike when you were on that location. Mm-hmm. And if you got really good, maybe an Olympic team, you started making money. Do you think that? I mean, obviously, we're seeing kind of a resurgence of marathoning now, at least on the U.S. side, with a lot of guys that are capable of running as fast as you guys did in the 80s. But do you think that system in particular was something that gave that little carrot to keep guys yeah, going I mean, longer? The, there's a void between qualifying for Boston and qualifying for the trials. And you need to have something between those two void, those standards. And it, People are not going to go out and just run so they can brag to their friends that they ran a 32-minute 10K. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, nobody really cares. Yeah. Um, it's, our sport is not like the sport in Japan. In Japan, you're very important if you can do well on your equity team. Here, you know, if you can't make the trial standard, you're just you know, another runner. Yeah. And so why put... Because you know, we, we had sacrifices. I, I dropped out of grad school. I could have been a PhD. 
all I had to do was finish my dissertation. And I dropped out because I was focused more on my running at the time yeah. and I was disillusioned with grad school. I think Arturo Barrio said the same thing with engineering. Like, yeah. He could I mean, have been an engineer. But... I mean, he, he, he had a degree. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of us just shifted our lives so we could do this because this was important to us. We weren't making a lot of money and we sacrificed the possibility of making a lot of money. Then, second half of the 80s and through the 90s and in the early aughts, a lot of guys said, well, why should I waste my lifespan? You know, because I'm not going to make much money doing it. I'm not going to get any attention doing it. We need to get back to where we have that kind of a structure. I don't know what it would be, but it needs to be something to encourage people to bridge that gap. Because, well, sure, qualifying for Boston, you can say to your friends, I qualified for Boston. But if you're, if you're qualified for Boston, you're a 235 marathoner. And that's where I started. Making that next 15 minutes is hard. There needs to be some sort of incentive, some recognition of some sort to get you excited about working a little bit harder, putting in another year of hard training. Now, I didn't get to the Olympic trials by one year of training. I mean, I'd started when I was 12. Well, how old are you in 1980? In 1980, when I made the team, I was 28. Yeah, so that, that's the other thing, too, is like the development as a marathoner takes time. You start earlier in your window than a lot of Americans. Well, I, I didn't start becoming a marathoner, though, until later in life. Right. But I had been running, and I'd been learning about running. And run, everybody seems to think running is a simple activity, and the actual action of running is pretty simple. But... It takes a lot of running over time to evolve the form you need to be efficient at it, yep. as, as well as to find out which part of running you're good at. Some people are middle-distance runners. Some people are ultra-distance runners. Some people can do both. Um, Matt Daniels. Yeah, yeah. Some four-minute mile. mile and hundred-miler, third yeah. place at Western States. Yeah, I mean, so, but that's not typical. And, and the only way to find out is to do it. And it takes time. You know, you know I, I see people, you know, get into one Olympic trials and they don't have that much success and they go on with one. Well, and that's also the argument for not lowering the standards then, too. It keeps people yeah. in the sport long. Yeah, I, I, I understand having 600 people is difficult. And I accept that it probably needs to be a few less. But at the same time, that many, there's a lot of excited runners that give us a broader base that are going to push the top of that pyramid higher and make those guys have to run faster just to stay on top. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know we need to think about the answer. Well, and that's like Lexi on our team. She's going to be debuting in Atlanta on Saturday for the marathon, but she's 23. Yeah. And to qualify with the half standard, she had to run pretty fast. It shows her potential when she does move up to the marathon full-time. But she's a 70-mile-a-week runner yeah. at 23, but that's going to be her distance, and yeah. it's getting used to that, too. And and it's not going to be – she's not going to go from 70 to 100. No. Nope. But yeah. she can go from 70 to 75 to 80, 85. Yeah. Every year, a little bit more. And if she does it right, four years, she might be there. Yeah, and at or 20, it might take eight years. Well, and at twenty-seven, then you could say uh, her primary event's going to be the marathon, yeah. and at least she has the experience of being at an Olympic trials event going in. 
to where if that was now her new experience, it would still be a large stage for her. Yeah, I mean, I ran the world championships in 83, and that was my first time on that stage. It's different than running in the U.S. European racing is, is a different... European road racing is a contact sport. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't ready for it. And yeah. it, it, it caused me difficulties in the race. And so if I'd had that experience, I'd have raced better at the World Championships. Having, I mean, somebody who's come and run the Olympics once can run the Olympics better if they're healthy and strong the next time. Same yeah. thing with the trials. You run the trials, you have the experience the next time. Um, that's the problem. We don't have a development plan. Yeah. And yeah. part of the development plan is to expose people to racing in stress situations. When when you were trying to develop yourself, especially when you started kind of taking hold of your own training, you had a little bit of a science background from schooling. There wasn't as much information as readily posted online now as there was as as there is now. Was it peer-to-peer discussion that you... Part of it is peer-to-peer, although you had to be careful because you go go to a race and you go out in a warm-down run with guys and they tell you what they've been doing, and you get five different programs. Yeah. And then you start thinking, well, i got to do this and i got to do that. And you had to have confidence in what you're doing. Um, those five different programs could all work, but everybody's a little different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, Kenny Moore is another good example. He had a 10-day cycle. Because he could only work hard every other, every third day, because he'd break down if he did more than that. Valentin was very astute in recognizing that. Um, and I've had, I coached for a while, and I had athletes, and I had to do it that way. But you you also picked up things. I mean, I Dr. Dave Martin who was one of distance running's ex, exercise physiologists. He's right up there with um, Jack Daniels. And, yeah, he wrote the book with. Peter Coase, Sebastian Coase, Coase dad. Yeah. yeah, he came out most of my early, you know, early, like 76, 77, 78, that time frame, early training long runs on Sundays before I shifted to Thursday. And we, he and I and half a dozen other guys would run together and he would talk to us about training. Mm-hmm. He talked to us about the physiology of it mm-hmm. when he had his breath. Yeah. But the crazy thing is he was a 240 marathoner back then and he was just a jogger, a 240 marathoner. Yeah. So then what advice would you give somebody now with social media where they're constantly comparing what other people don't are do doing? It. Don't do it. And that's, don't do it. I mean, it's hard not to, but don't yeah. do it. And Strava's fine for people like me now that is an old, mm-hmm. almost jogger. I mean, I still go out and run as hard as I can, but I... I the know, expectations are different. The expectations are different. But if you're serious about your running, don't pay attention to what the other guys are doing because... You've got to trust what you're doing. If you yeah. don't have the faith in what you're doing, it's not going to work. Do you still find yourself as much of a student of the sport now as you were then, or do you find yourself more of a fan? I, it's a split. I, I'm, I'm a fan, although my knowledge now of the infiltration of drugs into the sport has, yeah. has hurt my fandom some. Um, but I'll read the science stuff that I see. I don't go seeking it out, but if I, if I come across it, I'll read it and say, yeah, that makes sense, or no, they're still stupid. Yeah. Because a lot of the science can't take out the placebo effect. Or trial and error, and, yeah, and seeing and, what works individually. And controlled um, experiments are very difficult to do. Yeah. And control is very important. If you can't do a control, 
you can't really be sure that the, you're not just convincing somebody that works. Yeah. Um, I've heard people argue that the, the uh, shoes issue is a lot of it's placebo. And I don't know. I haven't worn a pair, so I don't know. But um, so I'm a little both. Of it. I still coach one person besides myself and my wife. And so I kind of pay attention to see if it's something I should pass on there. And I, you know, I, I've been doing this for I think, 55 years ago is when I first ran five flat. Yeah. So yeah, I've been doing it a long time. What about this weekend at, in Atlanta? Is there something in particular you're excited about? Is it the actual race or is it more meeting up with friends? And It's more, probably more meeting up with friends. Uh, there's a group of us getting together um, on, on Friday afternoon. And I, I haven't seen most of them in years. And this might be the last time I see them anyway. Yeah. Because we don't get together that often. We're all getting to that stage of life where... Makes it harder. You know, well, we want... One or two of us will die in the next five years. Yeah. At least. Yeah. Um, there's nothing we can do about that. But it, it's also, this is the first time I've been to the trials since 92. Oh, wow. Um, so that would be kind of fun to... to although and that is, was also Atlanta. I know that was no, the that, Olympics was Atlanta. The Olympics was... That no, was that was Barcelona. Yeah, was Barcelona 96. was then. 92 was Columbus. Columbus, yeah. I ran 80, 84, 88, 92. Wow. I was qualified. So this will be your first trials as a non-competitor. As a non-competitor. Uh, I was qualified in 84. They brought us back as team members in 88 92. I ran and finished in 88. I dropped out in 84 and 92. I was injured in 84 and 92. It was, just, it was too hot, and the pace was too much for me, and I didn't feel like being last again. I was last in 88. Yeah. Well, any predictions on who you think makes the team this weekend? If you want to put it on paper, um, I, I kind of like Ward yeah. and Hall. Yeah, I think those two are pretty good picks. I'm probably wrong yeah. <laughs> because once you pick somebody, then you put the curse of death on them. Yeah, but it's also like there's emotional attachment to different athletes that you yeah. want to see. Um, I think there's going to be at least two surprises. Yeah. Just with the nature of the course. Nature of the course. I mean, I, I had three-minute PR yeah. when I made the team. And Hefner did, too. Yeah. So we could see that again. Um, and, and, you know, the, the people like um, Nell Rojas. I mean, she's, she's – I don't know that she'll make the team. It's unlikely. But there's somebody out there also like her, probably. Yeah. There's this come out of nowhere and getting faster and faster. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a freight train out there that we don't know about. Yeah. And so, but that, and that's part of the excitement of this is why our system is the best system because you know, I never make a Olympic team given time standards. Time standards. And, you know, if they, if they pick the team in eight, I was 13th or 14th on the list. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating on Saturday. And obviously, the, the course makes it the variable that makes it fun. Um, it'll, it looks like it'll be cold, maybe a little blustery. So that also adds another and, add and in. more pack running for sure. I think the biggest pack is going to be, I think the back of the women. Yeah. yeah there's yeah. a whole bunch of women who just got up the standard and they're all going to run together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot more stuff that I think you and I should sit down and talk about for future podcasts. Um, this this was this was obviously fun, but it like spurs my like trajectories of different things that that I'd like to talk about in the future. So we'll have to we'll have to figure out some more s- 
time to talk. Yeah. Um, well, I just live right here, so it's no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Benji's a neighbor of my office here in Boulder, so it's uh, it's pretty fun to see him um, and get his advice on a lot of topics. But it's it's also it'll be fun to put a lot of that on on recording that we can share. Um, but looking forward to seeing you down in Atlanta too. And I, I appreciate you taking the time with me today. That was fun. All right. I'll see you. Thank you.